0: Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast, I'm Adam. The case we cover today, I think, is a fascinating story of love, adventure and greed around the turn of this century, and it also poses some questions against the so-called war against the drugs trade. But before we start with that, I'd firstly like to thank this week's Patreon supporters, that's Sarah Price, Jessica Cole and Stacey-Ann Crook. Thank you so much for your support, I really appreciate it, and I hope you enjoy the seven bonus episodes and the other extra content. So let's take a look at the music charts at the time of this case, October 2000. The number one spot was filled with Steps with Stomp, followed by the Bar Heart Men with Who Let The Dogs Out, and then U2 with Beautiful Day. Topping the US charts was Christina Aguilera with Come On Over Baby, having just dislodged Madonna with music from the top spot. And in the Australian album charts, Kylie Minogue was at number one with light years. What do you think? Vintage collection of music? Hmm, not so sure. At the start of this month, the excellent Sydney Olympics closed. What do you think? Was it the best ever? I think so. In the last ever football match at the old Wembley Stadium, Germany spoiled the party, winning 1-0 against England. And also in this month, a train crash north of London in Hatfield led to the collapse of rail track. In the US, the Yankees defeated the Mets to win their third straight World Series. And back in Europe, mass demonstrations in Belgrade led finally to the resignation of Serbian President Slobodan Milosevic. The Isle of Wight is situated off the south coast of England. Have you been there? Many people know it due to the excellent sailing and for the Cow's Week regatta that takes place every year. I imagine that many of you true crime fans will be more familiar with the prisons of Parkhurst and Albany, which have housed infamous names such as the Yorkshire Ripper, the Cray Twins and Ian Brady. My mum grew up in Cow's and we spent many times there as a family when I was young. I've also sailed there numerous times, so I have lots of affection for the island. But my real interest is not so much Cow's, it's the much wilder, a more isolated southwest coast of the island from the Needles to Ventnor. Access to many of the beaches can be tricky due to the high cliffs, and I've read numerous books about shipwrecks and smuggling on this part of the island. Indeed, I've spent many hours walking on my own along the cliffs, especially around the area from St Catherine's Point, the far south of the island, to Atherfield Point, just exploring the deserted beaches, clambering up and down chalky cliffs and watching the rabbits and jackdaws and thinking back to events that had taken place in the turbulent seas off the island all those years ago. Probably the most famous wreck is that of the Clarendon, which perished at the foot of Blackgang Chine on the morning of October 11th, 1836. Local fishermen followed the boat's progress from the 400 feet high cliffs, knowing that she was unable to clear St Catherine's Point, in a terrifying gale with mountainous seas. When she struck at the shore at the very foot of Black Gang Chine, she was only able to survive three waves before being smashed to pieces by the fourth. Local fishermen managed at some considerable danger to themselves to scramble down the cliffs and rescue three people from the doomed vessel, but the rest died that terrible morning, either by drowning or killed by the timbers in the surf. The 25 fatalities from the Clarendon led to the building of St Catherine's Lighthouse and if you are ever at nearby Black Lang Chine with your family maybe I strongly advise you to take a trip to the nearby St Andrew's Church in Chail, where the victims of the Clarendon along with many others from nearby shipwrecks are buried. I think it's an amazing peaceful spot and you can easily allow yourself to be taken back to the scenes of yesteryear as the funerals of those shipwrecked locally were held. And just a few miles from here, slightly south towards Ventnor, is where our story today ends. But let's leave that until later and begin our tale in Norfolk. Norfolk is a rural county on the east coast of England, known for the inland waterways known as the Norfolk Broads, and for being the birthplace of the most famous of England's sailors, Lord Nelson. Almost 30 years ago, one person who grew up in Norfolk was 24-year-old Julie Patterson. Julie had experienced an incredibly privileged upbringing at the family farm on the Norfolk coast where her dad was a successful livestock breeder. Norfolk is still a very rural county today and back then at the school most of her friends were from local farming families. As a teenager, she joined a local young farmer's club and at 17, when she won a holiday to Denmark in a competition it was on a farm. What else? Farming was everywhere around her And her family fully expected her to marry a farmer, which she duly did when she married James Patterson, who was from another wealthy Norfolk farming family. But you know that feeling that many of us have had in our lives of being trapped and frustrated, just following the paths that others have chosen for us? This is how Julie quickly started to feel. After only four years of marriage, the mundane predictability of her life lay before her and she hated it. So just four years in, in 1978, as Julie saw her life unfolding in precisely the same predictable way her mums had done, she decided that this just wasn't for her at all and she was going to live her own life, one of adventure, where she could take control of her own destiny. Luckily for Julie, she had the financial freedom to make the change she wanted and taking £10,000 out of her bank account, she jumped on a plane to the glamorous south of France where she experienced the lifestyle enjoyed by the rich yachting circles around the Mediterranean. If you spent time in Monaco, Cannes or Margate, you will know just how that must have felt for someone unused to this life, where money is no object and anything can be achieved. The opulence of the super-rich. And Judy liked what she saw. She liked it a lot and she wanted this to be her life too. The first step was to learn to sail and she managed to get work on local yachts as a crew where she soon earned a really strong reputation as a capable sailor who thrived in the strong winds and rough seas and who could comfortably put up with the hard work and unpleasant conditions often experienced by professional yacht crew. Sailing became Julie's career and as part of this new life she sailed across the Atlantic three times. The highlight for many sailing careers is the first sail from Europe, To the beautiful Caribbean islands It's no surprise that in the Caribbean There's a thriving regatta scene And this is just how it was for Julie The day she sailed into the stunning waters Around the beautiful island of Antigua Julie knew that her life had changed forever And this is where she wanted to call home If you've ever been to Antigua You'll know exactly why Julie felt this way Natural beauty, a wonderful climate And relaxed local people Judy began a yacht charter company from the island, which quickly became a success. And by 1994, and at 38 years old, Judy felt it was time to put down some roots and she began to look for a house to buy in Antigua. The one she fell in love with was owned by a prominent member of the yachting crowd in Antigua, 48-year-old Michael Tyrell. The house was in one of the most amazing locations possible on Antigua. "'surrounded by wooded hillsides and lush greenery. "'I don't know about you, but if I shut my eyes, "'I can picture it with the warm wind blowing "'under the blazing Caribbean sunshine "'and the smells and the noises.' "'Julie immediately fell in love with it, "'and although the attraction was not quite so immediate, "'she also began to fall for the owner of the house, "'Michael Tyrell. "'Like Julie, Michael had been born to a wealthy family. "'He was known as a bit of a lovable rogue,' He was kind, but with a big personality and a reputation on the island when he met Julie. Michael had already served a prison sentence for his involvement in smuggling marijuana in Guadalupe and Antigua. He was a cannabis evangelist that didn't think it was right that anyone should be denied its healing powers. He'd had an interesting life. As a young man, he'd been an outstanding Formula 3 racing driver, and it was only after his sponsor was murdered that he turned to dealing in cannabis to support himself. When he received his sentence for smuggling marijuana, he took his sentence without complaint. He knew the risks he took, and prison was always going to be a risk in his profession. Working with Colombian drug networks and his Caribbean contacts, he was actively involved in smuggling, which funded a great life for him and meant he could afford to buy a decent property portfolio both in the Caribbean and the UK. He maintained a love of fast cars and he owned a number in Antigua. Though he wasn't caught by authorities, Michael Terrell was very open about his involvement in the drugs trade and he liked the reputation and influence that this gave him in the local community. When Julie asked him what he did for a living, he didn't hesitate to tell her quite openly that he was a drug smuggler. He would spend hours telling her stories of his adventures with the professional career criminals who were his best friends. His charm was infectious, and the two began a passionate affair, which was nothing like Julie had ever known before. It was a world away from her earlier marriage back in Norfolk, and those days seemed like another lifetime for Julie. The two would spend hours at their favourite table in the Commissioner's Grill restaurant in St John's, Antigua, where Tyrell would tell Julie his tales of drug running, risk and adventure. And however many times he told her the stories, Julie relished the excitement and always wanted to hear more. After a while, Tyrell started to talk to Julie about his plans for a new drugs operation, which would see him personally make more than $10 million. Julie was, well; she was so excited at the romance of the plans and she could also immediately see how her sailing experience and her practical logistics ability could be vital to the success of the operation. Picturing to herself how the two of them would talk and laugh in future years about how they'd managed to pull off this fantastic drugs operation and bask in their success. It would also set them up financially for the rest of their lives. Father of three, Tyrell, called himself the first white Rastafarian of Antigua after the island where he grew up. But as well as being supremely charismatic and great company, he was incredibly arrogant and he never imagined for a minute being caught. This confidence was contagious, and Julie couldn't wait to get started. After all, what could possibly go wrong? Tyrell had already begun meticulous preparations. In 1996, he brought his family to Britain and bought a £900,000 house in Hampshire. Three years later, he purchased Orchard Bay House near Ventnor on the Isle of Wight for almost £700,000. It had its own beach, and it was built 150 years earlier, as a base, ironically, in the battle against smugglers. And it seemed to him like a drug runner's dream HQ. Landing the goods from a private yacht into this isolated location appeared to be the perfect solution. However, unfortunately for him, UK customs officers were onto him, and they learnt something was afoot around about July 2000. And a joint investigation with customs in the Caribbean, Operation Eiffel, swung into action with Britain's National Crime Squad. Tyrell, who split his time between the UK and Antigua, was tracked whenever he was in Britain. He began to establish his gang in the Caribbean. His right-hand man was Robert Cavanaugh, the owner of a huge $2 million hideaway on the Caribbean island of St Barts. He used his contacts with the drug cartels of Venezuela and Colombia to arrange a supply of the cocaine. Colombian boatbuilder and sailor, German Hanno, who was aged 48, and Laurent Penchev, 32, a dual American-French citizen, were to be a crew on the yacht used to deliver the cocaine from the Caribbean to of White, and Didier Lebrun, aged 49, from Fort Lauderdale in Florida, was going to take responsibility for skippering the vessel. Lebrun played a key role in spending £35,000 buying a pretty battered 37-foot single-masted vessel that he was told he could keep, along with a £140,000 payoff after he'd sold the cocaine to Britain. Pencheff was to be the watchkeeper and helmsman during the transatlantic crossing and he was also responsible for safely transferring the drugs ashore once the vessel had reached Yarn of White. As well as the overall responsibility for the sailing of the yacht which was named Blue Hen on the 3,500 mile trip to England, Julie Patterson was also in charge of the finances. She was detail orientated and implicitly trusted by all members of the gang. In September 2000 they were finally ready. The Blue Hen, with its three strong crew, collected the drugs from Beguia, an island in the Grenadines near St Vincent and headed for the Isle of Wight. 32 days later, after an uneventful voyage, on October the 22nd, they arrived in the waters of the English Channel, close to the Isle of Wight. As the sailors among you will know, October is a time where the UK is often battered by storms, and as the Blue Hen approached the Isle of Wight, the weather began to worsen. The 879 pounds of cocaine was packed into 20 large bales, and as they approached the island these were loaded into the yacht's 12-foot inflatable. Lebrun then remained aboard, while Pencheff and Heno headed for Tyrell's house at Orchard Bay. But halfway there, the outboard died, which meant they had to land the boat at Woody Bay, which was half a mile off course. Their options, of course, at this stage, on this filthy evening, were limited, and they abandoned the massive cocaine consignment on the beach and began a treacherous nighttime cliff-top slog to the base at Tyrell's house, where the rest of the gang awaited. This was exactly what had happened for hundreds of years on these deserted beaches on the south of Yarn of Wight, where the treacherous conditions gave smugglers a huge advantage over the customs officers. But the plans for the gang started to fall apart, as Lebrun, worried by the lack of news, ignored orders and sailed towards the house. Tyrell couldn't believe what was happening here, as this amateur mistake could only bring attention to the house. So Tyrell, barely able to contain his anger, ordered him to turn around immediately and head away from the location. It was then that Pencheff and Hanno arrived with the news that the drugs had been left a mile or so along the coast with no guard. Tyrell was fuming. This wasn't how he'd envisaged the plot unfolding after all his meticulous research and planning. Surely it couldn't go wrong now. There were more echoes of bygone days of smuggling along the coast as the gang then set off in a rowing boat to recover the cocaine. After locating the bales finally, the gang then began the physically grueling task of carrying the drugs back to Tyrell's house. The nature of the cliffs on this part of the island means this walk isn't always easy on a bright summer's day. So during a foul night as the rain was almost blown horizontally by the strong southwesterly wind... Carrying the packages along the narrow, winding, uneven path was a nightmare and as dawn approached, only six of the bales were safely at the house. Luckily, around this time Pencheff managed to fix the outboard motor so six bales were transported by inflatable as originally planned. With eight bales still to collect and daylight close to arriving, Tyrell knew that he had to move quickly and he jumped in a van to collect the final eight bales. It was at this point that the customs officers who had been watching every aspect of the events of the night from their cutter offshore and officers placed close to Tyrell's house decided to swoop. Tyrell, with his keys in the ignition, tried to fight back but he was overpowered. When asked later why he'd even bothered to fight back, he responded, Well, you've got to have a go, haven't you? And I suppose, knowing the length of sentence he was looking at, he was probably right. Six of the gang were arrested on the shore and one other on the yacht. Judy Patterson and the final member of the gang were found huddled together in the back of a holiday chalet nearby. Can you imagine just how Judy must have felt when she was caught? Like the rest of the gang, she must have been absolutely soaked through to the skin, cold, tired, and desperately miserable, knowing that her dreams had just been shattered, and all she could look forward to was prison, none of the luxuries of her life on beautiful Antigua and for a sailor who was happiest when experiencing the freedom that sailing brings, the most unbearable confinement of a life in prison. The gang faced trail at Snaresbrook Crown Court in north-east London. It was revealed that after the 396 kilos haul had been weighed, customs officers realised they'd seized the largest single British cocaine consignment to date, with a street value estimated at over £100 million. Michael Tyrell conducted a defence, saying that he was forced into the plot against his will, as a Colombian drugs baron had threatened to kill his mum if he did not do exactly what he was told. He also made it clear that cannabis was his thing, and he'd always been quite open about this. He said that he would not ever have imported cocaine, and he must have been set up. Sadly for him, the jury did not buy this explanation at all and found him guilty. Sentencing him to 26 years in prison... Judge Timothy King told him, "You were the boss, the governor, the man at the very top of this organization, the man to whom others looked for orders and instruction. This was your brainchild, your scheme." The judge continued that the three weeks that Tyrell had spent in the witness box had betrayed a highly manipulative man, utterly devoid of scruples, and prepared to go to any lengths to achieve your ambitions. You were even vain enough to manipulate the very course of the trial itself. You used the witness box as a platform to assert your warped ideologies and perversions of the truth. That is the measure of you, Michael Tyrell. A vain, self-interested, arrogant, greedy, manipulative and ruthless man. Another interesting defence was produced by another member of the gang from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He'd been the man arrested in the chalet with Judy Patterson. He had tried to convince the jury that he thought he was smuggling Venezuelan artefacts rather than drugs, obviously hoping for a lighter sentence. The jury didn't believe him either and he was sentenced to 18 years in prison. The three crew who had delivered the blue hen from the Caribbean were also sent to jail. Herman Hanno, the Colombian boatbuilder who was the only person on trial who actually admitted his guilt. Laurent Penchef and Didier Lebrun were each given 18 years. The judge said, The likes of you are like a cancer on the Society of the UK. And then finally we turn to Judy Patterson. In court, she was labelled by the British tabloid press as the cocaine queen of the Caribbean, but she maintained that she was innocent of any charges. Despite there being clear evidence of her hosting a planning summit at her home in Antigua, and on her arrest, Her handbag was full of documents making her involvement in the plot clear but she still followed the only defence open to her arguing that it was all the fault of her partner, Michael Tyrell. Julie was just following orders and she did not think for one second that there was anything wrong with what they were doing. Why would she? But again, the jury didn't believe her story and she was found guilty and sentenced to a whopping 24 years in prison the largest sentence ever given to a female drug smuggler in the UK. Judge King said that Patterson had played a very prominent, if not pivotal, role in the enterprise. Although she was in a relationship with a highly manipulative criminal, she was his dedicated ally. The judge added, You knew what you were about and you played a very prominent role. So prominent, in fact, that your role was almost indistinguishable from Tyrell himself. The judge told her that just like Tyrell, she commanded considerable influence and authority in the smuggling operation. The judge addressed all the smugglers, telling them, Those who involve themselves in the trafficking of hard and addictive drugs such as cocaine are nothing less than the purveyors of misery, degradation and death. I and my colleagues in the criminal courts deal on a daily basis with lives which have been blighted, decimated and in too many cases ruined beyond repair by drug addiction. These are for the most part ordinary people who have been driven to commit crimes such as shoplifting, street muggings and burglary in order to feed their cravings. Then there are the lives of their many victims, damaged, hurt and all too frequently traumatised by the violence committed against them. He went on, You and others like you have much to answer for. Drug abuse is a cancer in decent civilised societies and one which, on a global scale, costs those societies many billions of pounds. The likes of you are a blight within such societies. The judge said that a clear and unequivocal message had to be sent out that such activities would be treated with zero tolerance. It was meant particularly for others who might be tempted to grab a share of the huge profits from this pernicious trade. Let it be clearly understood that however great the risk and however great the profits – the penalties meted out by these courts will be even higher. So do you make of what we've heard today? All that planning, and yet the plot ended up in farce, and the gang members all sentenced to long stints in UK jails. I started the episode talking about my excitement growing up, hearing about the smugglers and shipwrecks around the Isle of Wight. In the books that I read, the smugglers are romantic characters, and we want them to succeed against the authorities. Of course, I bet the reality, if we met some of these characters, we then may have felt slightly differently about them. But is there any part in you that wanted Michael Tyrell, Judy Patterson and the gang to have succeeded? This was Tyrell's last drugs operation, as while well serving his sentence at Franklin Prison, he died at the hospital in North Durham on the 30th of May 2013. His three daughters were appalled at the nature of his death. After 13 years of good behaviour, he was due for release in 2015, but he died a slow, painful death of throat cancer and pneumonia. Talking to the Guardian newspaper, one of his daughters explains how their father was a weak 65-year-old man who had lost five stone in weight, but even as he was clearly dying, the authorities still kept him handcuffed, only removing them a few hours before he died. I imagine some of you listening would have no sympathy at all for Tyrell, as he knew the risks, and also, you know, the horror that the drugs he tried to import would have brought to the community. However, in our society, should we really be showing such a lack of dignity to any prisoner who clearly poses no risk? What do you think? And what do you make of his prison sentence? Do you think that 26 years, more than most murderers, is right for a man who has never shown any violence? And 24 years for Judy Patterson? I appreciate the judge was trying to make an example of Tyrell and the gang, but once again this huge sentence is massive compared to others passed for similar crimes. Once more, for me, it's the randomness of the British justice system, where logic and consistency so often appear to be absent. But I guess this argument about how we, as a society, deal with drugs and people who smuggle them is for another day in another podcast. I appreciate that many of you will hold strong views on both sides of this argument. And finally, what of Judy Patterson? What do you make of her story? Of course, it's hard to escape the irony that as a young woman, she walked away from wealth for adventure and in the end, she went to prison for a crime that would have made her wealthy once more. I wonder if in her cell she has regrets or when she's released soon, she'll believe it was a price worth paying to really live life with someone she truly loved. Not the existence that many live today where surviving the daily grind replaces a life of an adventure and excitement once dreamt about. Or maybe she wished she'd stayed in Norfolk. I wonder. But thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this story as much as I've enjoyed researching it. Please support the show on Patreon where for less than the price of a flat pint of lager in a dodgy East End pub you could be enjoying the seven bonus episodes and the other content available only to Patreon members. Please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime to join us. Please also head to the Facebook group to discuss all aspects of UK True Crime including your thoughts on the sentencing for drug crimes. I'll be really interested to hear your views And you are very welcome. Why not take a look on Amazon for Fred Mew's book, that's M-E-W, Back of the White, which prompted my interest in the shipwrecks and smuggling of a bygone era on the Isle of Wight all those years ago. But for now, this is all from me. So until we speak again next week, it's cheerio.